Engage quantum drive. Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 9, Domino, which was written by Brandon Braga and Andre Barbanis and directed by John Kassar. Before we get into our reviews today, I just wanted to mention that Katie and I have been doing a lot of interviews lately. We've been super busy talking to the cast and crew of The Orville. So make sure that you're checking out those episodes in both the podcast feed and on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash quantum drive. Do it. It's been so fun. And I've loved getting to hear the behind the scenes, all of that. Yeah, it's been a wild experience. And we have so many that we're looking to get out and probably some more coming up in the future. So just be uh, on the lookout for everything. Yeah. It's exciting and very surreal at the same time. Like sometimes I feel like I look at Rob after I'm like, did that just happen? Like, was that a thing that we did? And it's been really neat to get not only the behind the scenes, but just get to get to talk to the people who play our favorite characters and make the show. That's just mind boggling to me. Our review today comes in from Lady Sim, who says essential listening for all Orville fans. Absolutely in love with this podcast. I only recently discovered it but I've already listened to all the episodes for the current season. I'm now doing a rewatch of the first season and listening to the associated pods. Love hearing your thoughts on each episode. My favorite episode of all time is A Tale of Two Topas. I was so angry with what happened to Topa and about a girl, and I love the follow-up to that story. Thanks for making such an enjoyable podcast. Yes, I also love A Tale of Two Topas. I'm really glad that you've enjoyed this season so far and that you liked it enough that you're going back and rewatching the show and then listening to the podcast. Oh, yeah. How long have we been doing this? Like three years. Oh, my gosh. It's exciting that the show is here. I'm so sad there's one episode left. But the fact that so many of you are discovering the podcast makes me very happy. And I hope you enjoy the original episodes with the first two seasons, because I feel like we had some really good discussions. Oh, yeah. And don't worry, just because there's only one episode left, that doesn't mean that our pod stops there because we have some post episode 10 plans as well. You can't get rid of us that easily. (laughs) (laughs) We also have an email from Eva who says, Dear Quantum Drive team, I've been looking forward to writing to you for a while now. I am Eva Johnson from Pittsburgh, and I find that your podcasts are a lovely delight that brighten my day every time I quote unquote join your discussion of the Orville episodes. You often notice different sides of things, which makes for a great debate, and I love the humor that is always present during the episodes. Thank you for making the already awesome Orville experience even better. Much love to you both, Eva. Eva, thank you. That is, I still don't, I can't get over it. I can't get over these emails and that people listen to us. Like I used to listen to podcasts like grocery shopping or going on walks. And I I think that's really cool that people do that with us. I don't think I believe it personally, but it's like (laughs) really neat to hear. So thank you, Eva. And I'm so happy you're enjoying the show and our discussions. Because sometimes Rob and I do disagree on some things. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's an abstract thing sometimes when we're sitting here just talking to each other. It is weird to think about the fact that there are actually people listening out there. But these are nice little reminders that you are all enjoying the show. So thank you. Yeah, it makes it worth it. If you'd like to send an email, you can send one to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do so by following Quantum Drive Pod. You can join the Discord at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. And if you'd like access to Mark's alternate one-sentence reviews, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Before we get into the episode, Katie has trivia. I sure do. I have a bit of trivia, but it's mostly a bit of trivia that I selfishly want to put in here, which is you should start trending hashtag renew the Orville everywhere you post on the internet. (laughs) So the trivia is that you do that and then hopefully we get a season four. The trivia is more a call to action than anything. Yeah, this this is a call to action. We need to get this show renewed for another season because... Did you watch this episode? Uh, yeah. It's I a rhetorical, rhetorical question. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I just I have to sneak that in there because I think the more noise we make as fans, there's a demand for it. So hopefully there's a season four announcement on the way. Absolutely. All right. Trivia. Gordon and Charlie are singing a song together at Kelly's family vacation home. And if you're curious about the title of the song, it is a Simon and Garfunkel song called Flowers Never Bend When the Rain Fall. Hmm. I was wondering what it was. I had a feeling you would tell me. Yeah, that was an immediate Google. Like, what song is this? Yeah, I really do enjoy Simon and Garfunkel, though. Yeah, that was a a nice rendition, too. I had no Mm -hmm. idea that Ann Winters had chops. No, I mean, I think this cast is just talented in so many areas. It's ridiculous. It's not fair to the rest of us. (laughs) It's really not. No. (laughs) When Ed finally confronts Talia at the end of this episode, he says a bad penny always turns up. Hmm. So it means someone might visit you uninvited at the last minute. And it's an old English proverb. Hmm. Okay. I had a little bit of a wonder about that, too. So, yeah, I appreciate that. An unwanted person or one who appears during a good event and disrupts a peaceful environment. So I just thought it was interesting because that's some shade that he threw at Talia. Talia the bad penny. Yep. The bad penny showing up. Also, at the end of this episode, Isaac states that he served with Ensign Burke for 257 days, 17 minutes, and 49 seconds, which means that she served on the Orville less than a year and gives us an idea of how much time has passed in this season. Yeah, I believe this happens roughly a year after the battle with the Kalon. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to me to be like, okay, so we see the episodes the time that has passed because mm-hmm. sometimes my brain's like has it been a day has it been months so right it's not like every episode is a day in the same week and we're yeah. following them in real time so it's a besides if you could hold your tears in during that scene it was an interesting tidbit about the time frame that had elapsed since Ensign Burke had served on the Orville yeah Last but not least, when the Orville discovers the Krill-Mocklin alliance, Ed mentions the Maltov Ribbentrop, which is a non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in 1939 that enabled those two powers to partition Poland between them. It is also referred to as the Hitler-Stalin pact and the Nazi-Soviet alliance. Oh, history. That felt like a history class right there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's super interesting little tidbit they snuck in there. Yeah, comparing the Krill and Mocklins to the Nazis in the Soviet Union. So those are the fun facts. And we're going to jump into guest stars. 
a lot of familiar faces returned for this episode. So instead of going back through everybody, we talked pretty in depth about almost all of these people. Michaela McManus was back as Talia, Ted Danson, Victor Garber, Graham Hamilton, Ren T. Brown, Lisa Baines, lots of familiar faces in makeup and out of makeup. So mm -hmm. just a jam-packed episode of cameos. And there was only one other guest star that I wanted to mention, and that is Reggie Davis, who played Dr. Kalba. And he has a little bit of Star Trek lineage. He played a Klingon first officer in Star Trek Enterprise in 2001. And they've also done a ton of other work over the years. But that Star Trek tie-in, I had to sneak in. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw a lot of voice work specifically mm -hmm. on the IMDb for him. So those are all the fun facts and guest stars for this episode. Okay. Getting into the episode itself, we begin on the Krill homeworld in the office of Chancellor Talaya. A Mocklin delegation has arrived to propose an alliance to stand strong against both the Union and the imposing Kalon threat. Though insulted by a female's request to share command decisions, the Mocklins agree to take Talaya's terms to their government. Mocklin's just coming in hot with that misogynistic attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they waste no time. And right after saying that the Union are hypocritical and forcing their beliefs on everybody. The Mocklins are like, hey, these are our beliefs, and now you have to abide by them. So good job, Mocklins. I did appreciate Talea's coming out swinging. Like, okay, calling out the hypocrisy and then also being like, this is what it's going to be. You're working with me and I'm co-leading or this isn't happening. Yeah. And literally saying to the Mocklins, you got some balls to come in here and make this quote unquote offer and then say, you can't have any say in this. So very interesting way to start the episode. But I have to mention, Rob and I off podcast talked about this, how we thought the Krill and Mocklins might make an alliance. And then this episode started up and I was like, oh, we manifested it. <laughs> yeah, I thought we had to say things on the podcast for them to manifest. But apparently no. we can just do it whenever. We can just think about what we want. So here I am <laughs> manifesting a season four. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I just thought that was interesting that we literally talked about it a day before. Yeah. And then boom. Boom, there it is. Yep. I, uh, in the scene when I saw the entry to it, and of course, we got another glorious look at Krill. Oh, I know. While it definitely would not be a good idea for a human to have that little sunlight in their life, mm -hmm. who doesn't want to live on a world that looks as cool as Krill does? I was excited when they started panning and I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, Krill's back. So <laughs> I would live on Krill. I would become a night person. Oh, for sure. To live on Krill. It's just too pretty. The LEDs have to make up for some of the lack of sunlight, right? Yeah, you'd have plenty of sun. We just get like a vitamin D lamp in our interior <laughs> space so our outside is our inside and our inside mm -hmm. is our outside when we're on krill that's all i really want to visit every single space city that they've put into the show this season mm -hmm. i just can't stop staring at all the details and the fact that they've made these places look like real cities and cities that i'm like okay can i go on to airbnb to look up a place to stay on krill because that's the ultimate goal that i live long enough to go to a space planet and stay in an airbnb and then live long enough to come home because it is krill it is krill yeah we'll see if i make it but it might be worth the view <laughs> <laughs> it might be a defensive group of union ships is in tight formation with a Kalon fleet incoming in engineering charlie isaac and john are arming a new device as 42 more Kalon ships drop out of Quantum and begin firing at the Union vessels, Ed gives the order to initiate the device. A wave of energy is sent out from the Orville, 
instantly eradicating the entire Kalon fleet, but leaving the Union ships unharmed. I actually thought at first that they were going to use some kind of EMP. Mm-hmm. But then when all the Kalon ships get hit and they explode, I was like, damn, that is much more than I anticipated. What about that shot where they're panning out into the debris? Oh, that zoom out. Yeah. That zoom out from the bridge and the bridge while it's at red alert as well, mm-hmm. just to make it stand out that much more. And then they come out from that and through all the debris. I love it. It was so good. The Union cluster. That's the best way for me to put this mm-hmm. of all the ships that also looked super interesting because they were all I'm like, why are they doing this? Because yeah. obviously I didn't know what was happening. My brain was like, at first, when we see the device, oh, is that the Aronov device? Just because my brain went there. And then I was like, no. And then my brain went to the episode with Denal. That's what I thought it was at first, too. The mortality paradox episode. I thought, wait a second. Is this one of those devices they found on the planet in the made up sim that Denal made? Except the device doesn't really exist. Yeah. So I went through all these things in my head of like what this device was. And it was when they eradicated the Kalon, I realized, oh, this is new. This is like a new thing. This is a new boom boom. Yeah. Very intense scene, though. Just dropping us into Kalon warfare. And this episode had was so stress inducing in the best way, like just the anticipation of what was going to happen. And I feel like this started off a very epic episode. Oh, yeah. Right into it. At Union Central, Mercer, Grayson, Burke, and Isaac are meeting with the admirals Halsey, Perry, and Ozawa to discuss the device. Isaac says that it's the result of his superior intellect and Charlie's multidimensional thinking. The device takes advantage of the Kalon network, creating a chain reaction between all connected Kalon within a given proximity. When Perry suggests using it on a larger scale, he's told that it's possible, but would require a stronger power source. Ed interjects that doing such a thing would be genocide, and Kelly supports Ed by reminding them about the growth they've seen from Kalon such as Timis. Halsey wraps up the meeting by saying that the matter will ultimately be decided by the council. A lot of good points being thrown around. The fact that Charlie and Isaac are working together made my heart happy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, the picnic. Picnic is going to happen. I feel like overall the genocide thing is a very good point to bring up. And if they want to technically do the same thing that the Kalon did to their makers. Mm-hmm. And the Kalon are a huge threat. But I think it was Admiral Halsey who brought up that, yes, Timis is emotional and has that chip, but that was due to a modification that was put on him. And Isaac can't even retain that modification. Right. Yeah, I think that was Perry. Was it Perry? Perry throwing shade into every argument. And we notice why later. Yeah. My heart this episode. (laughs) A lot of good points brought up. And the council obviously has a hard decision to make, which we find out later on what that is. But this debate in general, I thought was very interesting to watch because there's a lot of different viewpoints being thrown around. Yeah, Ozawa posed a question asking if it's really genocide if they're preventing the Kalon from killing other species. And immediately Mm -hmm. I was just like, yeah, yeah, it's still genocide. It doesn't matter what the rationale is. Genocide is genocide. Yeah, it's still genocide, even if it's for, quote unquote, the greater good, which I feel like is debatable in its own way. Yeah, I think this whole season they've brought up a lot of morality issues 
which I very much have enjoyed because I feel like it's given my brain a workout. And also, it's been very interesting to watch all these characters navigate these situations. And Mm. not everything always works out, as we find out, and not everything's always smooth. So this little discussion at this table changed so much of how the trajectory of this episode went. Oh, totally. There was a part, too, where one of Kelly's arguments, I thought, could have gone a little further, and it would have shut Perry down pretty much right away. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Perry shoots down Kelly's argument about the Kalon changing because, and he gives the rationale, that Timus was modified instead of evolving on his own. No one mentions Isaac. I thought that too, because you and I have talked about it, obviously, on the podcast, mm-hmm. but just also like, Isaac's evolving. We all know this now, right? He's arriving at these things on his own, but I don't know that they know that yet. They know that Isaac is a part of the union and he's not slaughtering everyone on his ship. So clearly he has learned, even if they know that he's not evolving, he has made a choice to help the union and Mm -hmm. therefore can make choices to change. And that's what Ed is proposing that the rest of the Kalon are capable of, even if they can't be modified, which is Perry's whole argument. Yeah. Even if they can't be modified, they can still learn. Yeah, maybe it is a little bit short-sighted on their part to not acknowledge that there is an example in front of them who helped create this device. Exactly, yeah. I think it's the threat of the Kalon is so big and there's so many of them. Maybe there's just a lot of fear-based reactions. Oh, absolutely, yeah. In the mess hall, Charlie, Gordon, John, and Tala debate the issue. Charlie and Gordon think it's clear that the Kalon should be wiped out, but John and Tala think it takes more consideration than that. Meanwhile, in the briefing room, Halsey informs Ed and Kelly that the council has decided to use the device as a deterrent. They'll travel to Kalon to reveal the device and hope that it results in a ceasefire. When they were in the mess hall, I wasn't completely certain why John got angry and walked off. That seemed a little strange to me. I wasn't sure if it was like the suggestion that Isaac was his buddy or that a subordinate was speaking to him like that. Because when he did snap back at Charlie, Mm -hmm. he emphasized the word ensign. And I know he was trying to put her in her place, but I didn't know what it was that actually triggered John. I wonder if we're not supposed to know yet, because that was very out of character for John in general. I can't figure out why that's the case. Maybe we'll see in the next episode that there's something there. Or because... John and Gordon used to be best friends, right? Yeah. I shouldn't say used to be, but it does feel like there isn't that camaraderie the same way because John's in engineering, Mm -hmm. Gordon's on the bridge. Maybe they just don't hang out as much. Yeah, it's very odd to think about like why he got so bothered by it. And Charlie seemed very unbothered by him saying like, knock it off, Ensign. And she's like, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, he left and she was just right back in it. Yeah. I feel like there's more to that. But like when we interviewed Jay Lee, he was Mm -hmm. saying that in the first episode, there was a little bit of suspicion from John towards Isaac. So maybe there's some sort of thread that's being woven through things right now and it'll be revealed eventually. I had that thought as well. I was wondering if there's still a lingering distrust that even though he works well with Isaac, he might not Mm -hmm. outwardly say that all the time or act like that all the time. I think with everything that went on this episode, I'm glad that you remembered that just because I think I forgot it in the mix of (laughs) everything else that happened. (laughs) There's a lot. Mm -hmm. As the Orville approaches the Kalon system, they arm the device. Halsey informs them that they wish to speak with Kalon primary, but they also have the device on board and are willing to use it. As a series of Kalon ships engage, the Orville repeatedly triggers the device and destroys them. 
The Kalon finally stand down and send landing coordinates to the ship. Once on Kalon, they meet with Primary and Halsey lays out their demands. When they ask if they're to be enslaved, they're told that the Union simply wants a peaceful coexistence. With no defense against the weapon, the Kalon are forced to comply. One of the things I love about this show is the quote-unquote villains. They have laid out so much complex backstory that you can't help but feel a little bit bad for them. Like when they ask, are we going to be enslaved? You know, that comes from a place of fear for them of like, we don't want to repeat what happened to us before. Did you notice Kalon primary throwing shade at Isaac, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can't remember the line exactly. Called him a weakness. Yeah, like your prime example of weakness is essentially. And I mean, I was sitting on my couch like, oh, because I was like, (laughs) that was harsh. Yeah. Which makes me think the Kalon are a lot more advanced than I think that they realize. Yeah, I agree with that. I also, to go back to your other point, too, this was the first time that we heard a Kalon mention enslavement since we've seen it. Yeah. And it hit different. It did. And that's like when you look at some of the other antagonistic, like Krill and Mocklands, mm-hmm. when you get more background on them, it creates such a different feel to them because you're like, I understand why they're passionate and they do these things, such as the Kalon, but it doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. So hearing them acknowledge their enslavement does feel a lot different than in the past when they just kind of are more like, we're just coming to get you feeling. So now we have more information. It's like, okay, they're doing this out of a very real fear because they were abused by their makers, judging based on what we saw. So it was a little sad when they agreed to a ceasefire, but it was like, you're forcing our hand. It's not that they wanted to do it. Right. And that comes up later too. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that they're like, I mean, we have no choice. You have this device. We will find a weakness and then we will do this all again. Yep. And in my head, I'm like, that's not a solution, but it does buy them more time. The union, it's not a perfect plan, but it's a plan nonetheless. It stops the killing for now, which is what they want while they can work on a better solution. The whole sequence when they're flying in, I'm just stressed out. I'm like, they're going to Kalon. This is such a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Especially with like one ship. Oh, yeah. One ship and they're just blowing up waves of Kalon to be like, all right, if you're going to be like this, here's another one. And they do eventually get down to Kalon. Getting to see Kalon again was cool. Yeah. But overall, that whole sequence stressed me out. I'm like, there's just like so many things that could go wrong here. They could have landed and gotten shot. Like, there's just so much that was high stakes about that entire situation. Mm-hmm. Back on Earth, in a cabin that used to belong to Kelly's father, Gordon plays the guitar while he and Charlie sing. Ed congratulates them on a job well done, and they proceed to enjoy some much-needed relaxation time. When Ed finds Charlie on the porch, she tells him that they should have wiped out the Kalon when they had the chance. Despite knowing that some of them are capable of change, their peace relies on the Kalon not finding a weakness in the device. Ed then reminds her that the Union doesn't kill unless they have to. Oh, man, the walnut scene. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I loved that scene so much. This is why I want Bordis and Clyden back together for the long haul. No one else <laughs> on this show can do these kinds of scenes quite like they can. We look like fools. (laughs) (laughs) It was so good. Their infighting is some of the best. It is. Because it's like aggressive couple fighting at a party. (laughs) It's just, I'm doing it like they told me to. (laughs) Just all of it. I'm surprised they let Tala crush the walnut. 
I know Clyden wasn't happy about it, but wasn't happy, but didn't necessarily criticize because a female did it. Yeah. Also, Mark brought up a good point. He's like, why aren't they just eating the walnuts whole? They can eat anything. That is a good point. So I was like, I know, but I'm like, maybe it's the festival of opening a walnut. Fortis has a line. I will crack the shell to get to the meat. (laughs) Yeah. The internal meat. (laughs) Yeah. I will say, though, it's not easy cracking walnuts. It's really not. No, those things slip out all the time. He just tried to rapid fire them. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly feel like it's more fun to attempt to crack open the nuts to then actually get the reward of the nuts inside. Yeah, walnuts are generally disappointing. I feel like most nuts are. (laughs) Just in general, like when you're sitting at a party and they have the nutcracker, you're like, oh, it's something to do. But it's like they're bland and they're not toasted and they have no salt on them. So it's just kind of like we're going to get all sorts of emails about our nut hate right now. (laughs) I love I really got to be careful of how I word things. (laughs) I love nuts. I'll just say it. But like I have to say my least favorite form of consuming them is at a party using a nutcracker. Very true. Yeah, it's not worth it. The discussion with Charlie on the porch. She's still staunch in her opinion about the Kalon pushing back on. We should have just taken them out. Mm hmm. I thought it was interesting. Ed said, we don't kill unless we have to. I literally thought back to the episode. I think it was called Krill. When Gordon and Ed go on the ship and then they kill everybody pretty much on the Krill ship. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about how Talea is a repercussion of that. So I wonder if he like draws from those things and just goes like, sometimes the solution is much more complicated than, you know, we can make this huge wave explosion and we can blow up all the Kalon, but that might make more problems somehow later on. Well, in earlier seasons, we used to talk about how flippant Ed's decisions used to be. Mm -hmm. He would make massive things like opening the ceiling of the bio ship. Yeah. It was just like, uh, this is the solution. Let's do it. Don't worry about the consequences. Let's go. I feel like now he's matured quite a bit as a captain and puts a lot more thought into every decision he makes. I would agree with you. I think it's he almost seems more stoic this season. Mm-hmm. And I feel like his decisions and his leadership has changed a lot this season, but he's become like the leader I think he's always wanted to be. Yeah. So he's kind of like the voice of reason this season. Which is a very big change from who he used to be, but mm-hmm. that's growth. Sure is. At Union Central, an unknown officer makes his way to where the device is being secured. He and a couple others take out the guards on duty and bring it to a Union shuttle, which quickly leaves the planet. The next morning, back at the cabin, Kelly gets a call from Halsey telling her to gather the team because the device has been stolen. Before we jump into the drama of the device getting stolen, Mm -hmm. I want so badly to go have coffee on that porch. (laughs) I was just sitting there like one of my favorite things to do is to drink coffee in the morning outside on the porch. And I was like, I want this view. This looks so pretty. That whole cabin situation looked fantastic. And they were on Earth. I don't know if they mentioned where they were. Did they? I don't think so, no. I just was like, if that's what future Earth looks like, I'd maybe stick around and see what happens. <laughs> Wherever they were, they would have had to be within range of seeing the Aurora Borealis. Mm-hmm. Up north somewhere, maybe Montana. I don't know. But I do feel like getting to see that little piece of the universe, too, is cool. Yeah. It's still like a very nature, old school cabin setup. And it's nice to see that hasn't gone away. It was very much like what we have now, but just more outfitted with future tech Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get calls from Admiral Halsey, who's giving a lot of bad news. It was an inside job at the Union. 
What did you think was happening when you saw that officer? Because I thought it might be a Kalon using a projector to appear human. Same. I was like, okay. that's a Kalon. I kept saying, oh, that's a Kalon. And then I was very wrong. It was not a Kalon. Yeah. I thought for sure it was also using a projector of some kind to appear human to infiltrate. And he's taking out one of the people in the room and then another person in the room shoots somebody else. And I'm like, oh no, this is like a whole group of them. It's not looking yeah. good. They would have had the blueprints for this device, I'm pretty sure. Possibly. But I think if anyone has the plans, it's just Isaac and Charlie. There's a lot about this where I'm like, they only have one of these and how easy it was for someone to just steal it. I'm like, maybe they should have beefed up security a little bit. But I know we find out later Admiral Perry was involved. So I think that retconned it for me to be like, oh, a lot of those issues were probably taken care of because an admiral helped orchestrate this. Exactly. Yeah. Any security that was put in place, he could have waved out of the way in one form or another. Yeah. The shuttle soon makes its way towards a Krill and Mocklin vessel. Once on the Krill Bridge, we see Admiral Perry meeting with Talea and the Mocklin delegate. Perry has brought the device to them because he believes that the Kalon will eventually find a weakness, and when they do, they'll lose their tactical advantage. He knows that the Krill will do what the Union will not. Unfortunately for them, only Isaac and Charlie know how to use it, so they'll need to figure it out on their own. As Perry leaves, Talea destroys his shuttle. I had zero clue <laughs> that this was Perry's doing until he was revealed. But oh, yeah. looking back through the episode, the signs are all there. Nothing that would necessarily make us go, oh, it's totally Perry when it's happening. But his motivations make sense based on everything we've seen from him. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's a shame is that we won't get any more Ted dancing on the show. I know this whole episode was like Ted dancing's back. And I'm just like <laughs> excited. Like, I'm like, look at all these guest stars. And <laughs> As his little shuttle's pulling away, I'm like, they're going to blow it up. Yep. I know they're going to blow it up. There's no <laughs> way they're going to blow it up. And they did. And I think in some ways it feels like it didn't really happen because you don't really see it. You just see this little dot go boom and you're like, oh, but then you realize, oh, Admiral Perry is on that and he is now no longer a part of the union, obviously, or the show. So that was really sad because I've grown to love all of the admirals. Mm -hmm. They have their little show up points in episodes and you're like, oh, you know, Victor Garber's back. And it's like, you know, Halsey and Perry, but they've become just as much a part of the show as the main cast. So you, you get excited when they show up. And I'm like, no, Perry's gone. Well, he did end up being a slight bad role by the end. It's tough because he's trying. Gosh, I don't even know how to talk about it properly. He's doing what he thinks is right. Yeah. It reminds me of people in our society today who are just like, my way is the right way and I will do anything to do what I want. And like, it's just one of those thought processes. Like, I will get this device into the hands of somebody who will do what I want, which is wipe out the Kalon in this mm -hmm. case. And Talay is like, yeah, we're going to totally blow him up once we figure it out. Like, yeah. there's like literally no hesitation, like guaranteed. And then the only reason that she blew him up was because they might have found out at the union that the Mocklin and Krill have an alliance sooner rather than later. Yeah, which ended up being not that much time at all. No, I know. I was literally after they find out immediately that the Mocklin Krill are working together. I'm like, oh my gosh, it didn't buy them that much more time. Nope. And that insists upon that Talaya's a little, little evil, maybe a little more than evil. <laughs> yeah, she's veering more and more in that direction. Although we do still see some things 
throughout the episode. There's glimmers of hope, but yeah. for the most part, she's so stuck in her ways and what she thinks is right that these kind of cold, calculated decisions are easy for her. Mm-hmm. She almost seemed happy about blowing up Admiral Perry. Yeah, because she was taking out a piece of the Union that she dislikes so much. Yeah, I was disappointed that Admiral Perry died. It was a really interesting plot point, though, and I feel like it created a lot of high stakes. The episode already felt high stakes, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they're not messing around. I don't feel safe. <laughs> I, I, I don't feel like my characters are safe. So it elevated this episode to a point where I was like, anything can happen now. As they try to determine who took the device, Halsey informs them of Perry's treason. The Orville heads to the shuttle's last known location, where they detect its remnants, along with residual weapon signatures from Krill and Mocklin vessels, revealing the existence of their alliance. Bordis suggests that they'll seek Dr. Kalba, a Mocklin weapons expert, at a research outpost on Draconis 427. In the space orbiting the outpost, the Orville sees an enormous fleet of both Krill and Mocklin vessels. Bordis detects the largest quantum core he's ever seen, So the ship turns around and goes for help. A lot happened here. That shot of all the ships outside of the planet was incredible. So many. And I think it was Gordon who was like, the scramblers are on, right? They can't see us. Like terrified. (laughs) uh, Well, Bordis is also like, we shouldn't stay here long. Yeah. You got to think about the detail of that. The amount of ships in that one scene, like the people working on this, man, this episode almost overwhelmed my eyes, like in a good way, like mm-hmm. in the sense of like, I'm taking a lot of in, but it all looked really good. And I really enjoyed seeing the contrast of the Mocklin ships with the Krill ships. And later in the episode, there is a Krill ship that kind of goes on a quote unquote red alert and just seeing the difference inside the ship of the lighting, mm-hmm. like purple versus red on like, I really loved the details in this episode and This specific scene, I was like in awe of that shot where you see all the ships in front of the planet. Mm -hmm. When Ed says at the end that they're going to go get help, Mm -hmm. I immediately knew where they were going. Oh, I didn't. (laughs) I knew right away. Where else would they go? Is this where he said the the Maltov Ribbentrop thing? Yes. Okay. I think at this point, maybe I had an inkling that they'd contact the Kalon, but I think I was also like, nah, they won't do that. Come on, that doesn't, what? Like, it was one of those denial. It's the Kalon. Would the Kalon work with them? So I think I'm just going along for the ride at this point. It is, but in shows like this, it's a little bit of a trope, but I kind of love it when they do it. The whole, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened here. The greater threat right now in this moment is the alliance. So they turn to who is seen as their enemy, the only person who can have a force to match this alliance because the union is outgunned right now Mm -hmm. and they need more ships. Yeah, I think it makes sense that they would go to the Kalon because it's technically they're the ones who are being threatened the most by this. Mm -hmm. And Mocklins and Krill are very powerful the Union wouldn't stand a chance, I don't think, going against them. No. Definitely a twist I did not see coming. I did not until right at this point when he said, we got to go for help. And I was like, he's going to do it. I think I was just in awe of everything at this point. I'm like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. I'm scared. <laughs> Mercer contacts Kalon Primary and says that the balance of power has shifted. He and Kelly propose an alliance to the Kalon, which they could use to break through the outpost defense and recover the device. Since Burke and Isaac are needed to disable the device, 
primary once again has no choice but to comply. There was a mirroring of a line from earlier in here, and I couldn't help but notice how similar they were. Talia says one at the beginning, primary says it here. When the Mocklin delegates are initially meeting with Talia, she says, you propose an alliance. And when they're talking to Kalon primary here, he says, you are proposing an alliance. So we're watching all these alliances form at the same time, which is super cool with almost the same lines. They're very similar, but Mm -hmm. I just liked that mirroring of the two separate lines. It's such an interesting mix because, I mean, the Krill Mocklin makes sense. Like the Kalon Union is such a at a left field thing. You never go, oh, yeah, they're going to totally team up ever. <laughs> yeah. So when this happened, I was like, how is this going to work? And the entire time I'm like, are they going to try to weasel and do something? Meaning the Kalon are just going to use this as an opportunity to overtake somehow. Mm-hmm. So the whole time you just feel that tension of like, oh, my gosh, are they going to do something? I was feeling the tension. But in the back of my brain, I was also like, Katie's going to be so happy <laughs> that we're getting more Kalon now. I mean, I haven't geeked out about this yet, but the ships are so cool. Mm-hmm. The Kalon ship design, and there was just several points in this episode where there's battles, obviously. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, there's so much going on. But I just really love the Kalon as an enemy, but also I'm just so fascinated by everything about them. And the fact that the Kalon are working with the Union gives me hope for a huge barbecue that they will all participate in at some point (laughs) you just want picnics and barbecues potlucks i want them all to get along (laughs) a fleet of union and kalon ships assembles and primary boards the orville to discuss the plan since the chamber is underground a ground team will need to enter through an emergency tunnel lamar and malloy will head a pterodon squadron to create a distraction while Grayson, Isaac, Charlie, and Tala will be the ground team. At this, Primary insists on joining the ground mission. While they don't trust him, they accept. How did you feel about how they talked to the Kalon? I thought you were going to ask me how I felt about the Pterodons. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Okay, the, immediately, as soon as the Pterodons showed up, I'm like, Rob is going to be so stoked. I was so excited. They've been taunting me for so long. Was it worth the wait? Yes. <laughs> There was even more than one pterodon. There were so many pterodons. <laughs> I was not expecting more than one. I thought this was like a one-off, but they have so many. Yeah. That whole sequence was so stressful. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are. But what was your other question? I completely blew over it. Yeah, I was saving my pterodon question for when they actually did pterodon stuff. Okay. Well, they mentioned it. That's all I needed. <laughs> uh, when they talk to the Kalon, how do mm-hmm. you feel about how they talk to the Kalon? I thought it was normal like i didn't notice anything weird about it why they were very aggressive in the way that they spoke to the kalon i think they feel in power for the first time in a while that they have the upper hand on them and i know in some ways maybe it's more for them than it is for the kalon but just stay on my good side the way that they would speak to the kalon i'm like i get it it's coming from a place of anger and they did kill a lot of their people Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was interesting when you're trying to work together with someone like, is that the most conducive way to keep that relationship moving in a positive direction? I think in a way it's coming at the Kalon with the same energy that the Kalon have always come at them. Yeah, I just noticed it like throughout even towards the end of this episode. True. They're very like 
That's the best way I can put it. (laughs) It's the Kalon. I think it's an anger built out of frustration. Yeah. The whole time, they just want the Kalon to think about it and take a look at who they are and what they do. Mm-hmm. And they're getting so frustrated that the Kalon have been so binary about it up to this point and that all biologicals are bad because our builders were bad. They haven't considered anything else. And that's frustrating. Yeah, I don't fault them for why they do it. I was just curious what you thought about it because they wouldn't be in this quote unquote pickle if the Kalon didn't do what they're doing. Right. So it's technically their fault as well. Mm. And plus, it's always aggravating to interact with anyone who just thinks they're right all the time. And that's exactly what the Kalon are. But I just noticed throughout the whole episode that thread remained where they all were very like snippy and very aggressive in how they communicated with the Kalon. I picked up on some of that a little later, too, but it felt very justified toward the end of the episode. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for everything that's happened. Like Mm. it, it doesn't not track. I did find it was interesting in the scene that Charlie was the one who chimed in that they trust Isaac. I know because that picnic hope was still alive and I'm super excited. My heart was so happy because I was like, they built that device together and I can tell that they're getting this rapport with each other. Mm -hmm. It's like that unspoken, I got your back, you got mine. Yeah. I was convinced, though, that Primary was going to try to destroy the device, and that was his motivation for going on this mission. I think it was interesting because, again, the Kalon throwing shade, you already bungled it the first time. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're coming. Yeah. Or I want to come. It's very dangerous, though. I didn't expect it to be as dangerous of a mission as it ended up being. No, that facility was a lot more heavily protected and a lot larger than I initially thought it was before we saw it. Because, you know, they go on these recon missions and rescuing Topa, all these things. This felt different. Mm -hmm. In a way, having primary with them is probably not the worst thing as long as he doesn't try to do something. That's the danger. Mm -hmm. The Union fleet engages the Krill Mocklin Alliance. As several Union ships are destroyed, a wave of Kalon vessels enter the battle. The Orville approaches the planet and the shuttle cloaks and departs while being escorted by the Pterodon fleet. The shuttle takes damage from the crossfire between the Pterodons and the Krill and Mocklin fighters, but can't risk uncloaking. They suit up and skydive from the shuttle as it's destroyed behind them. So on top of Pterodons, we get the quick suit up montage and the jumping suits. Mm -hmm. We get Pterodon and we get jetpacks in this episode. Come on. This is speaking Rob's language. (laughs) I loved all of this. I love a suit up montage. Have I told you I love a suit up montage? I love it. I I watch superhero movies a lot. So (laughs) this is like a superhero movie suit up montage. And I loved every second of it, even though it was as brief as it was. Mm -hmm. And then we got jetpacks as they were heading towards the ground. I loved it all. It was so good. I feel like this scene specifically they made for you because it was like, yeah, like (laughs) I'm watching this. I'm like, Rob's going to be so stoked about all this. And I'm sitting there so stressed out because at this point I had convinced myself someone was going to die. And I at first mistakenly was like, are they going to kill Gordon? And I'm sitting there because I mean, that whole pterodon sequence was not sunshine and daisies. It was a lot. And then the shuttle's taking fire. Like, it was a stressful sequence of events. And at this point, I realized, oh, I think someone's going to die today. And I wasn't wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, you're probably like, yeah. And I'm over here like, oh my God, they're going to kill someone. So yeah, I think you and I had a very different experience. It was very cool though. The freaking masks that they wore, those yeah. were really cool. I love those away tactical suits. I don't know exactly what to call them. I know they said like egress packs for the jet packs and stuff, but mm -hmm. their suits and they've worn them a few times over the course of the season. Yeah. They're like tactical away mission ones. I love those suits. They're great. I feel like the costume design this season has been phenomenal. It just all looks good. Mm -hmm. I thought Charlie was pretty awesome when mm -hmm. she fell out of the back of the shuttle. Just like, yeah, whatever. Like, just so confident. That's action movie star behavior right there. And I'm yeah. here for it. So capable and confident. I thought that too, when they were leaving the shuttle bay and it's just like getting rocked and she's like, all right, we're going. And I was like, wow, she's got like a calm confidence mm -hmm. that I feel like I haven't seen before. And I was like, that's pretty cool. This episode destroyed me in some ways because I'm like, yeah, Charlie's awesome. And then they took her from me. So now I'm <laughs> upset. <laughs> like this was the episode that really pulled it all together for Charlie. And I'm like, dang, they had to do that. They had to rip my heart out and step on it a couple of times. OK, sure that's did. great. Thanks. Thank you, Orville. I'm going to cry now. <laughs> As the ground team lands, Tala opens the door and they make their way inside. They encounter a guard patrol, so Kelly and Tala engage, while Charlie, Isaac, and Primary head for the device. As Dr. Kalba informs Talaya that the device will take eight minutes to initiate, a guard enters to inform them of the facility breach. Kalba then brings the array online, and Ed orders Gordon and John to go after its transmitters, but it's too heavily defended. Again, the stress-induced panic during the Pterodon scene. <laughs> I mean, it all looked really good, which shows how invested I was in what was going on mm. because we didn't really talk about it. The Mocklin and Krill fighters, too. Yeah. What did you think about those? Those were cool. I was very focused <laughs> on the Pterodons. <laughs> and I was really happy that it felt a little bit like old times with John and Gordon working together like this. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the almost Top Gun essence of these yeah, scenes. Yeah, it was like Top Gun slash Star Wars dogfighting. Mm -hmm. We didn't really bring it up, but there's a very Star Wars feel again, like an identity, part one and two. I think it's the epic space battleness of it all. Just inherently reminds me of that when there's pew pews everywhere and different color laser beams and definitely like the dogfighting stuff reminds me of that. But overall, I feel like this had its own flair to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely stressed out though because i was so worried about what was going to happen i think this is the part where gordon gets someone on his tail mm -hmm. and then i was like this is it and so i'm just sitting there worrying it all looked really good and i was so invested in what was happening that i feel like i'm still dealing with this scene because i feel like overall it was so well done i can't even put into words how i feel about any of it well then i'll talk about the set here because okay. the outpost registered with me mm -hmm. that this is very likely the same set that they used where Topo was brought for that same facility. And it makes sense because they're both Mocklin facilities. Yeah. So the fact that they would look similar works for me. And if they need to cut corners here a little to make that visual effects budget work, then I'm totally cool with it. So go right ahead. I saw someone on Twitter mention that they're like, oh, it's the same set as from Midnight Blue. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, it's a Mocklin facility, so they would all probably have the same blueprint. I mean, it's two secret Mocklin facilities. They'd probably have a similar style, yeah. Yeah, they probably go secret facility, here's the blueprint. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was okay with that, because I'm like, it checks out. Yeah. And 
I agree as well. The amount of special effects in this episode that looked phenomenal. This was a movie. This whole episode was like a movie. Yeah. Like it felt like a movie. So yeah, I think I'm just still reeling from it all because it was just so epic. Talia surprises Kelly while she's alone and puts a knife to her throat. The commander elbows her way out of it and the two go hand to hand. Meanwhile, Charlie, Isaac, and Primary have found their way to the device chamber and Primary takes out the armed guards. Kalba informs them that the device can't be uncoupled and shutting down the quantum core would take hours that they do not have. Isaac and Charlie step up to the consoles to give it their best attempt anyway. As the Mocklin scientists attempt to escape, Primary fires at them. Kelly and Talea continue to trade blows while Charlie begins to get frustrated with trying to defeat the encryptions. The Mocklin delegate pulls out a gun and raises it towards Charlie, but Isaac blasts it out of his hand before letting him leave. Primary asks Isaac why he didn't kill him, and Isaac responds that it wasn't essential. That reminded me of when Primary had Ty, Mm -hmm. and Isaac tried making the argument that he shouldn't kill him because it's not necessary. It's not essential. It's the same thing Isaac is saying. He's still trying to convince Primary, you don't have to kill him. There are other ways to do this, so... This is right after Primary wipes out a bunch of them trying to leave. Exactly. Yeah. So it showed the stance that Primary takes, and then it showed the way that Isaac would behave here. The combat between Mm -hmm. Kelly and Talia, I absolutely loved. I knew you would. (laughs) (laughs) We do not see a ton of hand-to-hand combat on this show, but this worked really well. And I could feel the personal undertones between these two because they do have a lot of personal history with her being the one who betrayed Ed and everything after tricking him into being in a relationship. And Kelly's really mad about that. Then we saw the way earlier this season that Talia took those cheap shots at Kelly, but now she can get her hands on her. She was still taking cheap shots, though. Yeah, (laughs) but now Kelly can fight back, so it it feels better. I wasn't sure how it was going to end because I was like, are they going to actually... Again, kill one of them. <laughs> um, I'm just breaking down every turn here. But Tala comes in last minute and takes care of business, luckily. Mm-hmm. It was pretty epic because they're cutting between the fight and what's going on in the yeah. quantum drive room. Oh, we got to talk about the massive quantum drive because it was like an amped up version of what's on the Orville. Oh, yeah. I was surprised that they had this technology. I don't know how the Krill and the Mocklins power their ships. Mm-hmm. They do go to quantum. But I never envisioned them having the same quantum technology that the Union did. However, maybe that's something the Mocklins picked up while they were part of the Union. Because that was brought up with the Genesi. They could get some of the technology right. if they joined. So I'm assuming there's just like, hey, you're part of the Union. You get like access to certain things. And that includes quantum technology. Yeah, I just figured that out for myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> this part where they're trying to get to work and disable this is so stressful and tense as well because you can see them going to town and there's conversations that happen where I'm like, they don't have time for this. They don't have time to talk about these things. But if you think about a real life scenario, you have to have some sort of discussions on this thing. Like when Primary realized, like, why didn't you kill him? Mm -hmm. I also loved that Isaac did that. It was instantaneous. When the delegate pulled out the gun, it was just like a fraction of a second. He shot it out of his hand. Yeah, no hesitation. And... Mm -hmm. We had predicted that at some point, Isaac would save Charlie's life. We need to stop manifesting. We need to start manifesting that they all live forever. Because (laughs) the fact that Isaac did that, though, there was such a love in it. And I know that might sound, you know, me with my robot stuff. 
but it felt very protective and very caring for Charlie in a way of like, no, I felt that too. That loyalty, even in like just that micro movements, you could just sense it from the screen. Yeah, it felt like that's my friend. You don't touch her. Mm -hmm. And then this is when I go full picnic and I'm like, heck, yeah, my (laughs) dreams are coming true. Little did I know. But cutting to Primary talking to Isaac, I loved that scene particularly because Primary kind of cocks his head to the side like, Mm -hmm. interesting. And it's like he had a realization. And I got really excited because I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're going to finally see like why what they're doing isn't necessary. And he's getting these real life examples that we can coexist and learning from Isaac. That scene worked as intended then because I got the same exact thought. This was the point in the episode where it started to register for me that primary is witnessing these repeated acts of mercy Mm -hmm. and he's starting to learn from them. Overall, this whole scene with the fighting between Kelly and Talia and then cutting back to this, there's just a lot that happened. Also, it was epic getting Kelly and Talia to finally have a showdown. Yeah. Mark brought up a point. He's like, why didn't they just kill Talia? Because that would have been a good point where Tala could have dealt with that. Mm-hmm. But then I was also thinking she's chancellor of the Krill. Like you can't just kill a leader of a world without repercussions. That's one part. And she knows where Anaya is. Which, yeah, that comes up later. I think it's a very complicated dynamic that makes sense as to why they just knocked her out versus taking her out. Yeah, to take her out isn't nearly as interesting. No, and then we don't have her, which is, it's interesting to see her dynamic in the show. Yeah. Talia grabs her knife from the floor and raises it to stab Kelly. But Tala steps in and knocks her out. They enter the chamber where Charlie tells them that the weapon will initialize in three minutes. She can't stop it, so she's going to overload it, destroying both the quantum core and the device. She suggests the rest of the ground team should get out while they can, but Kelly says they're not leaving her behind. Brooke shouts back that she has a mission to complete, and Grayson reluctantly departs with the rest of the team. As they're leaving, Primary stops and glances back at the Ensign before he goes. Once on board a Krill shuttle, the ground team leaves the outpost, and Kelly orders the fleet to get away from the planet. As the countdown completes, and the quantum core in the chamber surges, Charlie looks up and internally says to herself, I'm here, Amanda. A massive explosion then destroys the outpost, as the crew watches from the Orville. Grayson contacts Ed and delivers the news about Charlie. They couldn't bring her home. I got all misty-eyed while you read that. I got misty-eyed while I was writing it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Good thing I have a tissue here. (laughs) I'm just sitting there like, oh, be strong, Katie. Because, like, legitimately, this was the arc I didn't expect for Charlie. Yeah. But she was just so, the whole last part of this episode, just so calm and confident. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's such a stark difference from Electric Sheep. It is, but there is an underlying stubbornness to Charlie that Mm -hmm. works with this. Because she was stubborn from when we first met her right until the end when Kelly's giving her the orders to leave. And she's like, no, I have a mission to complete. That's that same trait carrying through. And I like that a lot about that. As the moment got closer, though, I understood why they were going to kill her character, but I still didn't want him to do it. Yeah, this is the episode for me where I already really liked Charlie and like even twice in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. That episode, I really loved her and Isaac and that whole adventure that they went on is the best way to put it. Yeah. 
so like throughout this season, it's just been like we've learned a lot about her because I think it contrasts a little bit differently during Electric Sheep because Ed gives her an order to help Isaac and she doesn't. Right. So here, the last half of this episode, she's just like, this is my purpose. And this is in a way, this is really sad to think she wanted to be with Amanda. So this was her opportunity to do something good or something she felt was worth it Mm -hmm. and still get to be where she wants to be. Yeah, I too was very surprised at how much this impacted me and how emotional it felt. And I have some stuff more in my takeaway about it. But given how little time we spent with Charlie, because there were episodes where we barely saw her. So it's not like they had a ton of time to develop her character. The fact that it works so well is a testament to the writing and Mm -hmm. the stories they set up for her. It wrapped up her story so beautifully. And I think that made it really impactful. Yeah. But also, like, I'm such a sucker for the Isaac Charlie picnic. And I know I keep making that joke, but it's because I really have enjoyed watching them throughout this season. Mm -hmm. And then, like, when Isaac shoots the gun out of the Mocklin's hand and that protectiveness, it's like, oh, this is everything I think a lot of us were hoping for. That camaraderie and acceptance. And it's just sad. It's always a tragedy when characters get to the point where you want them to be. And then one of them gets taken away. Mm -hmm. And I already can see the catalyst that she will be for the future of this episode. So she played a huge role in what will happen now. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like her impact, even though her character is gone, will remain for the rest of the show. Because what she's done has changed the course of history. Mm -hmm. Back aboard, Kelly heads to the bridge and tells Ed that Talia will be taken to the brig after being treated in sickbay. Mercer turns to Primary and asks him what happens next. The Kalon inquires as to why Burke would terminate her existence, and Kelly says to save him. When he asks for clarification, Isaac tells him that these biologicals are not like the builders. They are worthy of preservation. Primary then admits that they've been incorrect in their assessment. In this scene, I really liked how long Primary paused when Ed asked him what happens next. And Isaac even had to jump in and say, you were given an inquiry. What's your response to that? I think it explains how limited the Kalon's thinking was. They couldn't process that any biological wouldn't try to enslave them. So when presented with that possibility, it just wasn't computing. And that's where that pause came from. It's something they never, ever thought about. That's just the way things are. So the fact that they were presented with different information, it took a lot longer for it to integrate into their consideration. Would you think, though, that the Kalons also have all the history of the universe as well, though, to draw from? I don't know about the universe, but anything that they've witnessed, because it's not like they're the Borg and they're just pulling information from different cultures and everything. That's why they send out the emissaries. Yeah. They're trying to evaluate different groups of biologicals. I'm curious who else they evaluated. Or if the union was the only one. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I just think about sometimes like how we have access to the internet and almost too much information in our mm-hmm. hands. So it feels like the download would probably be a lot. This is the moment where I'm like, this will change, I think, what the Kalon do. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, we have one episode left. And I'm so curious because this almost felt like a season finale. Yeah, in a lot of ways it did. It brings up a lot of questions and definitely gives me hope about the Kalon. I'm really excited because I'm like, oh my gosh, just watching 
the primary learn from this experience was really cool. Yeah. Especially since what happened was that Charlie literally died for them. Yeah. Also, all I can think about in this scene is how beat up Kelly also looked and how she's like, I don't need to go to sick bay. That's Kelly. Yeah. I think I'm still reeling from the emotion, which just happened with Charlie. And then we come to this and I'm sitting there like, yeah, you better not. You better not try to kill all of them after what she did for you guys. It was kind of a relief to see the primary at least start thinking Mm -hmm. in terms of, oh, maybe we were wrong about some of this. This is where Kelly's aggression felt justified because she just watched Charlie die. And when he was like, oh, maybe we got it wrong. She's like, yeah, you did. That felt very, very justified. Yeah, this is a justified Kelly letting the emotions kind of flow out in what seemed like an obvious answer. Yeah. Ed heads to the brig to tell Talia that they're taking her back to Earth, but he can't protect her this time. He then mentions Anaya, and Talia says that she's in safe hands. Ed goes on to suggest that while she'll be tried for war crimes, he can give Anaya a home. Despite his pleading, Talia says that a divine purpose eclipses all family bonds, and while she's a prisoner, Ed will never see her. This whole scene was interesting because in the past, Ed has always been in a weird, not a weird way, but kind of protecting Talia. Mm -hmm. And this time he's like, I'm not doing that. Not after what you did. And then asking for, let me take Anaya. I can give her a good life, which I was like, good on you, Ed, for asking that Mm -hmm. and being refused to do that since he's like, you're not going to be able to like be there for her or make sure she's taken care of. And she just doesn't care. But then when Ed leaves, I thought, even under all that makeup, you could see Michaela McManus, her portrayal of Talia emoting underneath all of that krill makeup. And you could see how she was almost like shaking and mm-hmm. upset about trying to keep this strong front. But deep down, she's struggling with a lot that she feels she can't express. And they lingered on that shot a little bit longer than you normally would to make sure that that point got across. And it certainly did. What do you think about Ed getting Anaya? When I saw this scene, as soon as it ended, my first thought was that this has to be the direction of the season finale. They're going to go try and get her. Yeah, I was wondering that. Anaya's always been like in the back of everyone's mind, I think, since Gently Falling Rain. So Mm -hmm. it's inevitable that I think she somehow becomes a part of Ed's life, which would be so interesting that Ed has a kid. I want to see where that goes. The whole interaction with Talia, though, was very interesting between the two of them because Ed's finally done with her, Mm -hmm. is the impression I got. It felt that way, but I'm not 100% certain, and I don't think we're supposed to be because that ambiguity is fun for the show to play with. Yeah, I feel like this is Ed's strongest stance on Talia. For sure, yeah. In a meeting with the Admiralty at Union Central, the president offers a provisional seat on the council to primary and the Kalon. This seat could then lead to being offered full membership into the union. Halsey adds that in exchange, they'd need a commitment to defending against the Mocklin Krill Alliance. While they find the council's democracy to be inefficient, they accept the terms. They had to, of course, take a little dig there at their democracy. I feel like that's the Kalon way. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They always got to say what's more or less efficient than something else. Yeah. I can see why this would be attractive to the Kalon, especially presented in the way that they present it here. Ozawa points out how they'll be influencing multiple worlds. Mm -hmm. And Halsey adds the idea of preventing the strong from dominating the weak. Both things that would prevent enslavement of the Kalon if they have a say in it. 
I think that the Kalon are realizing, oh, this might actually not be as bad as we originally thought. And then them even giving it a chance shows a lot of growth on their part. Mm -hmm. That they're even considering this. And then they do accept the terms, obviously. But how is that going to change? The Mocklin and Krill, which have been since day one, the Krill have always kind of been like the baddies. The Mocklins used to work hand in hand with the Union. And now the Kalon are potentially going to be a part of the Union. And that is something I did not see coming. I'm looking forward to the inevitable Union Council scene where the Kalon are sitting there and everybody is kind of like side eyeing them. You got to say there's going to be an adjustment period. Oh, no doubt. (laughs) But you think about, too, if the Mocklin rejoin, I think some would get side-eyes, too. At this point, yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting twist that I did not see coming. Nor I, but a, a pleasant one. A memorial is held for Ensign Burke on the Orville. Mercer announces that she'll receive the Union Medal of Valor for her sense of duty and sacrifice. When asked who would like to speak first, Isaac stands. Dr. Finn assisted me with the construct of my statement. However, the substance is my own. I presume it will be adequate. Ensign Burke loved pancakes. She consumed them with butter, but no syrup, and was indifferent to the addition of berries or other condiments. As a child, pancakes were her favorite breakfast. I served with Ensign Burke for 257 days, 17 minutes, and 49 seconds. And yet, my understanding of her remained incomplete. She had an impressive brain for a biological. She perceived the universe in ways others could not. Ensign Burke regarded me as an enemy. Yet despite her animosity, she chose to save my life when no one else was able. And in the final seconds of her own life, Ensign Burke substantiated for all the galaxy her true nature, one of integrity and selflessness. And in her sacrifice, She inspired the enemies of the Union to become friends. Her existence was brief, but much like the first domino in a succession, her impact will be felt far into the future. Katie, what is your big takeaway from this episode? I have a lot of thoughts. I think I'm still processing this episode because as I was typing my my takeaway list, I was like, I still think I'm going through it in my head. And going Mm -hmm. through the episode today helped a lot because I think that allowed me to process it for the podcast too. Cinematically is just a beautiful episode, literally a movie that we get to watch for a TV show. 
the people who worked on the show from designing the planets to ships that we see, the makeup, everything is just so well done. And I love that we get to experience it. And I know I say it all the time, but you can tell there's a lot of love built into the show and that the people who make the show are very excited about the show and what they're putting out. And as a sci-fi fan, I really appreciate that because then I'm excited about the show because it's so easy to get immersed, which is proven by the fact during the Pterodon sequences, all that, everything happened on the Mocklin planet. I was so invested and so anxious about what was going to happen that it was easy to get lost in it, which is hard for me. Because I mean, nowadays I'm so analytical about movies and TV shows because we do the podcasts like, and I've done other podcasts where I'm watching shows and I'm like, hmm, I wonder how they did that. Oh, that's interesting. They must have set up a shot like this. And like this, specifically the sequence when they're in that huge battle above Draconis, I was just so invested and stressed in the good way. I want to say it in the good way of just mm. like what's going to happen. We talked about the krill Mocklin Alliance off podcast. It's interesting to see that it actually came true. <laughs> so I'm afraid of what we manifest and we need to be careful about what we say is what I'm going to put out there. I'm really sad they killed off Admiral Perry because the admirals have a special place in my heart. There's special characters that pop up and we get to experience. And I love Ted Danson too. So seeing that end of Admiral Perry's storyline is quite sad. Yeah, we've had years of him on the show. I know, but it was a very necessary part of the show because I think it drove a lot. And then also we lost another person this episode, which was Ensign Charlie Burke. And I really thought her whole story was very well crafted. From her first episode where she's super antagonistic and not even wanting anything to do with Kalon or Isaac. And then we get to this episode. In a way, I fell in love with her character. And I'm so sad that she's been taken from me now because I was just so excited about Isaac and her relationship and watching that blossom and her interactions and getting settled in with the rest of the crew and them singing at the the cabin together and seeing that camaraderie. And it made her death very impactful. I didn't expect to be punched in the face with emotion when I watched this episode, but it definitely affected me. And I put in my notes, it's not quite the picnic I was hoping for. It was more of a picnic of death, but the essence is still there of Mm -hmm. what I meant by that. And then the joke throughout the whole podcast is that I wanted Isaac and Charlie to have that common ground and they did get there eventually. They did, yeah. And I'm so sad that they got there and she's gone now. Right. And then, oh my gosh, Isaac's eulogy. I'm just sitting there like, come on, show, you can't keep doing this to me. And (laughs) when he listed out the time that he knew her, that was the thing that got me. Mm. So, I mean, the whole pancake thing too. But when you think about Isaac, he is a robot and he can track those things down to like a fraction of a second. But he noted the second that he stopped knowing her. Yeah, And I was like, that is so poignant and a little bit of that existential crisis kick in at this moment too, where you're like, man, life is fleeting. And this was a really beautiful story that we got to witness. I was shocked that she died. I didn't see that coming. I didn't anticipate that. I was prepared for a death after Admiral Perry, but I did not see that it was going to be Charlie. So overall, I feel like Ann Winters did an incredible job in the show. I'm sad that her run is over now for the Orville. And I just have to say kudos to her because she impacted me hugely in nine episodes. Yeah. I already cried once. I'm not going to like when I think about it too hard, (laughs) I start to get emotional about it because it did impact me. I feel like everyone in this episode really shined, especially Ann Winters. 
And I really feel like this episode had it all in the sense that it had action, drama. It had something for everybody in it. But it was such a well-crafted episode from start to finish. Mm. I think I'm still processing the episode. (laughs) But overall, I think this is one that I will never forget. You know how there's just certain episodes in a show that stay with you? And I think this is one that will stay with me for a very long time. There is a shot that is living rent-free in my brain right now. And it is the one on Charlie's eyes with the fireball in her pupils. Yeah, that lives rent-free in my head now, too. Yeah. It's just one of those things, too, where I didn't feel like this was gratuitous or anything that was done for shock factor. I feel Mm -hmm. like it moved the story along, and I appreciate that. Because sometimes shows do do that, where they're just ripping and tearing because they can. But... What I appreciate about it is that this was a purposeful death and it was one that I feel like was crafted beautifully in this story. Mm -hmm. So that's my takeaway from this episode. I feel like I could probably talk about it forever. I'm glad Isaac and Charlie had their moment and getting to feel that little bit of love between them at the end there. And I, oh God, they just ripped my heart out with this episode. So yeah. So Rob, what's your takeaway from this episode? What a ride this episode was. Like you mentioned earlier, we had speculated off air that there would be a Krill-Mocklin alliance, a possibility. And here it is, come to fruition. But if you would have told me that by the end of this episode, the Kalon would be on their way to becoming part of the Union, I would not believe you. That is something I did not see coming. And yet, here we are. I like it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great development in the story. It's become redundant at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Because we say every episode, but the visual effects are just so stellar. They're unbelievable. Yeah. I particularly loved the lighting of the pterodons when they're fighting in the atmosphere and there's like sunset colors around Mm -hmm. everything. It was gorgeous. It looked so good. Of course, course there's something on the pterodons. (laughs) Yeah. That's what caught my eye. Yeah. The big moral question of the episode is whether genocide can be justified if it means your own survival. The argument is made early on that genocide denies the potential of change and evolution. Change that we've previously seen in both Isaac and in Timis. Mm-hmm. Even if Timis's was a little different. Ed's faith in that ideal is validated by the end. And I think that's important. I think it's great when optimistic sci-fi and i love optimistic sci-fi so much more than any other kind of sci-fi because it presents an ideal and usually by the end validates that ideal to say the right thing to do was the right thing to do i love that i'm happy they went that way and that it turned out that the kalon had a realization it's that that little bit of hope Mm -hmm. of i'm already so excited about the fact that the kalon can become more sentient In that emotional way. So I'm just over here jazzed about that. But I was really excited that the teachable moment minimizes it so much. But that's something that happened, changed their perspective. And I think that's a really cool way to do it. Yeah. Even the ones who you think are most incapable of change can still learn and grow. Yeah. It's a great message to have here. And I like it a lot. Finally, Charlie Burke. I have seen all sorts of weird fan backlash directed at her. Oh, really? Yeah, I have. And it's disappointing. And it's generally around the fact that she was so outspoken and mean toward Isaac. And they thought she was a one note character. But 
from a storytelling perspective, every character can't start in an optimal place. If you do that, there's nowhere for the character to go. Charlie's a character that was consumed by trauma and lashed out because of it. And that's a thing that we were made to understand and feel from the beginning with her. I totally got where she was coming from. Every time there was an issue with her and Isaac or something, I was always holding out the hope that they would eventually meet at a common place. And they did. But I also realized that it's not just going to be like, oh, you're all right. Life isn't like that. Right. And I feel like it's unfair to put that on her because she had a little bit more of an aggressive side towards a character a lot of us really do love. But it's also like real life. Not everybody gets along. Not everybody is going to have kind words to say about somebody else. And it's just a factor of how things are. I guess I missed out on the the backlash stuff, but I feel like her character was very well crafted and she played her really well. Yeah, I agree. I'm curious to see what people will say now that this has happened, if they've changed their opinion on that. I had the same curiosity. Yeah, there were some people who already changed their tone when she made up with Isaac mm-hmm. and it clicked for them. And I imagine this will do even more for that. I do feel in a way that kind of like you said before, she never really got over Amanda's death. Yeah. And to me, that made her sacrifice more believable. I think when it happened and she's in focus mode, I'm going to overload this. And then it's really dark to say this. But like when you're in those throes of grief and yes, it's been a long time, I think, since her ship has exploded and she's Mm -hmm. lost Amanda. But it sadly felt like that's what she wanted in a way. Yeah, it felt like. And I mean, she said it internally Mm -hmm. in a way, too. But it did feel like in that moment. She was able to let go because of that. And it made it feel okay to her. Her at peace with what's happening. Yeah. Like she was so traumatized and tortured by what had happened that for her, she didn't necessarily want to die. Mm -hmm. But when put in a situation where she felt like she had to sacrifice herself, it made it justifiable to her. It makes a lot of sense. And if you paid attention during this season... It makes sense for her character and you can see the way that she grew. I feel like Charlie became one of my favorite characters this season. And I really was like, dang, like this episode specifically, you just see her in action and that kind of person you want in those situations who is just like, I'm getting it done or I'm confident. I'm going to make sure that I handle things. And it showed her strength in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I just think it was a really well done story. Yeah, ultimately, I found her character's arc and her story to be incredibly satisfying, which is also why her sacrifice hits so emotionally. If it didn't work, we wouldn't feel this. I'm still fighting back tears as we're talking about it. (laughs) And there is, again, to bring up another kind of mirrored thing. The episode is called Domino Mm -hmm. for two reasons, because they talk about the device earlier. The first time they mentioned Domino is that it's like a domino effect. The device hits and it goes through all the others that are in the same proximity and destroys them all, like falling dominoes. Same thing here. And Isaac mentions a domino during the eulogy. I know. Saying that Charlie's sacrifice is like a domino effect and it hit the K-Lon and went through the K-Lon and it changed them in a way. So it's a different set them up and knock them down, except this time we're not destroying them. We're teaching them to grow and learn and change. It was such a well done episode. I just can't get over it. And I think that's why coming up with my takeaway, I was like, there's just so much Mm -hmm. to say about it that there's almost no words in all of the words at the same time. Yeah. 
The only thing I disliked about it is there's always something, right? Not enough pterodon? <laughs> I got a lot of pterodon. It's more than I expected, and I'm pretty satisfied with it. Yeah. The only thing I dislike is no more Charlie Burke and no more Ann Winters. I know. Because like you, she really grew on me. I liked her from the beginning. I never had really any animosity toward the character, and that surprises me that people would. But yeah, I'm bummed. I'm bummed that she won't be in the show anymore. Yeah. I think it's just one of those characters that it hurts when they take them away. But it it shows that she was a character that meant a lot, clearly to you and I, that it, it evoked the reaction that it did because I will miss her as well. And I'm like bummed because I'm like, man, I really wanted to see more of her interactions with everybody. Mm-hmm. And her growth was so cool to see this season. So dang it. I need to like have a spa day or something after this. Well, the positive takeaway is that the character's arc was so satisfying. Yeah. So even though it ended the way it did, yeah, it felt like a complete circle. It's a rare thing that you get when a character's introduced and we say goodbye to them in the same season and they meant so much to us within that time. It's so intentional. Everything about Charlie was so intentional. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the show in general always has an intention, which is why I think I just trust the process. Like, like I never felt like, oh, Charlie's here. Why would they do this? Like, I'm just like, just trust the process because mm-hmm. they always do it somehow where they end up breaking my heart or leaving me satisfied. And I do feel like what's sad is she died, but I feel like it did complete a circle. I'm very sad about it, but she told a dang good story. It worked. Yeah. Before we get out of here, we have one more thing to do. Because Katie's husband, Mark, is also a big fan of the Orville and always leaves us with his one sentence review. Mark's log 72720222. It has been nine weeks since season three started, and so far, my crying hasn't stopped. I will update you next week, but for now, I'm going to go get my heart back as it has been ripped out of me yet again. Mark out. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at Katie Peters Plays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in In the the future. future.